Good morning. Good morning and welcome to the session on Father, Sons and Brothers, Our Journey of Faith and Friendship. I'm Daryl Tippins and um, retired from Pepperdine University and retired from ACU and uh, happy to be here with you uh, today. I'm Leonard Allen and um, I work at Lipscomb University um, as the Dean of the College of Bible there and uh, Daryl and I are very pleased to be doing this together. This is something uh, that, uh, very different from what we usually do here at Pepperdine. So. Yeah, I would argue that, uh, at least based on my experience of going to Bible lectureships and programs like this uh, at our uh, Church of Christ affiliated schools, uh, I'm not aware of anyone covering the topic the way at least we're going to cover the topic today and tomorrow. So. Uh, we may be in trouble, we don't know, but we'll find out about that. But uh, we think there's an area of, <coughs> of serious concern that has been neglected uh, in our churches and in our families, and uh, we're going to try to dive in and say some things that may be a little bit uh, off the beaten path. Um, we, we begin with a premise that we think there is profound evidence for, and that is that friendships among people in America today are, in general, declined. Now, we'll have to define what we mean by friendships because probably everyone in this room assumes or thinks strongly that you have good friends, and you may be exactly right, and you may be the exception that proves the rule. But according to all sorts of social surveys, friendships among all demographic age groups are in decline. Social networks in general are thinning. And you, one could argue that what we see seeing happening at the macro level in America the nastiness in Washington, for example, is happening at the micro level, too, at the local level, the decline. There was a time, for example, when people in Congress, regardless of which side of the aisle they sat on, once they argued and made their debates, they went home and had dinner together and were friends and socialized. They actually liked one another. There were good friends across the aisles uh, in, in Congress. There's less and less of that today. And we think it's happening also at the local level. So. We're asking the question of what's happening to friendships in America, and we think that there is a gendered element to this. And so for those of you who are women in the room especially, I want to thank you for coming, because I think you're going to see, uh, if we make our case well, that what we're dealing with in male friendships is having a negative effect on everyone around them, not just the men themselves, that we're all sort of invested in this question. Uh, we are particularly, uh, interested in the question of why are male friendships in America in particular decline. We think there's, a, there's evidence that it's more pronounced, it's more significant in terms of its uh, failure. So this decline leads to all sorts of social and spiritual problems, serious problems which damage the individual, but also marriages, children, churches, and society in general. And we think the evidence is in all directions if you want it. This matters because of what it does to each one of us. There's a kind of a cascading effect. So <clears throat> if you have a father, or if you have a husband for you women, or a brother, or a son, if you have male acquaintances or coworkers, if you go to church with men or boys, then you are being affected by a problem of male isolation, whether you know it or not. And by the way, many men are really good at concealing the problem. And so this is why over and over again, when you see some act of violence in a school <clears throat> and you look at the social relationships of the perpetrator, 
what do you see? Over and over again, we had no idea. And then you start drilling down and you see how isolated these young men are. And almost invariably, it's men, right? Males, boys, very, very rare for a woman to do what boys do and young men do in America almost daily now. There is a reason. So today, <laughs> we're going to try to define the problem and particularly address the question of why is male friendship particularly uh, at risk. And then Leonard's going to talk about <clears throat> a story of friendship. We think maybe one of the best ways to understand it, <clears throat> pardon me, is to look at an example. And then we want to uh, today uh, define our terms because the term friend and friendship, these are very ambiguous terms today. They cover an enormous range of kinds of relationships and there's a lot of confusion. We'll try to do our own best to uh, minimize that confusion. And then just a quick preview of tomorrow, <laughs> part two. We're going to cover, uh, or touch on four basic themes tomorrow, following up on our uh, story today, our definition of friendship. First of all, we want to focus, as the title of our, of our series indicates, upon our fathers, upon fathers and friendship. Particularly uh, tomorrow, we'll focus on our fathers and the friendship challenges they experienced and which they, in some way, you might say, bequeathed to us. A man, I guess one of our thesis is, theses is a man's readiness to form deep and lasting friendships is related to how his own father befriended others. Or not. And we'll tell our own, some of our own story there. Did father, did our dads have friends? Do they have friends? What challenges do men face when they fail to see deep friendships modeled by their own fathers? And Daryl and I have both in our own lives struggled with that. That a man's readiness to form deep and lasting friendships <clears throat> is related to how his own father befriended others. We learn by watching and seeing the patterns that he lives before us. Secondly, tomorrow we're going to touch briefly on, um, as Daryl mentioned a while ago, um, the issue of friendships and the larger family relationships. Uh, we believe that friendship not only blesses the primary participants, those, who, those two or three that are friends together, but they also affect the quality of one's marriage uh, and how one parents one's children so that there's a ripple effect to the deep and lasting friendships that men form. We will consider how and why male friendships can bless our wives and our children. Thirdly, we will again tomorrow briefly uh, develop a theology of friendship uh, or, a theo or a spirituality of friendship. To use the words of Simone Weil, friend friendships enshrine the light of God which is a way, a kind of way of pointing to the central Christian doctrine of the Trinity, which we would say is the example of perfect relationality. And the goal of the Christian life is to, to, to glimpse and to step into and begin to participate, to be loved perfectly and love others perfectly. And of course, in our own relationships and lives, we only glimpse and briefly taste it, I would say. But that becomes the model True, true friendship builds faith and encourages fellowship 
And uh, we can learn much about this across the centuries as Christians of different eras have written about and told about the friendships and how it relates to faith. And then finally, tomorrow we'll uh, end our series with a little bit about the care and feeding of friendships. We will conclude with some thoughts on how to ensure or to grow and to increase the quality of one's friendships, including steps to uh, renew old friendships and to build new and rich ones. So we'll conclude with suggestions for the care and feeding of friendships uh, over our, own, our life journey. So that gives you a preview of where we'll be going in these two days together. <clears throat> So Richard Cohen wrote in the Washington Post, my friends have no friends. The reason for that is we are all men, and men, I've come to believe, cannot or will not have real friends. Now, I hope he's absolutely wrong, but someone thinks like that, and a lot of people think like that. So I want to begin by making the claim again that friendship in America generally, not just in the gendered sense we're going to be talking about, is at risk. And the problem is evident across age groups <clears throat> and across genders, but it's particularly acute for men. Uh, I would argue that there is an ecology of friendship, <clears throat> that just as plants flourish <clears throat> when the nutrients and the water and the light are, are optimal, when the temperature is right, uh, then the plant flourishes, and the same thing is true of friendships. And so friendships are in trouble today, not because of some willful act of an individual necessarily, but the very climate in which we are now operating today in many ways creates speed bumps or barriers to the formation of deep ties. And we'll try to look at some of those. Another way of putting it is <clears throat> friendlessness in America is simply an expression of loneliness and social isolation. And it's in all directions. In the words of Arthur C. Brooks, uh, in an article in the New York Times last November, America is suffering an epidemic of loneliness. Uh, here's an, a book that came out recently. Uh, it's called The Lonely American, Drifting Apart in the 21st Century. So if you want a kind of a global picture <clears throat> of what's happening in our country, our culture, uh, you might look at that book. Uh, but you may remember way back in 2000, Robert Putman, Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone. Uh, which in many ways was uh, prescient and prophetic. Uh, what he confirmed in 2000, 19 years later, is simply grown uh, significantly. Uh, Jacqueline Olds and Richard Schwartz, uh, in their book, the one I just mentioned, uh, document the fact that increasing numbers of Americans are profoundly lonely. Social isolation is pandemic, leading to all sorts of disorders and problems in our culture, damaged health, Almost any um, category of well-being you can find <clears throat> is negative, negatively affected by the loss of relationships, whether it's old people in nursing homes or teenagers spending all their time on social networking and not having real uh, friends. It's, it's in all directions, leading to substance abuse, violent crime, emotional problems among our children, and divorce. Uh, Senator Ben Sass uh, wrote a book recently, uh, Them, Why We Hate Each Other. And in his book, uh, he says, loneliness is killing us. 
and he cites the fact that 45,000 Americans will take their lives and more than 70,000 will die from drug overdoses. Depression is just growing exponentially. Talk to anybody who works with college students today. The suicides that are occurring at our college campuses is uh, beyond belief. In yesterday's uh, USA Today, there's a graph on page one about how many people are experiencing loneliness and depression uh, at, at their workplace. Among 18 to 24-year-olds, the report is 39%. Um, what's causing this? Uh, I would argue, uh, and it's brilliantly argued both in the book, uh, The Lonely American, but also in another book called Breaking the Male Code, Unlocking the Power Friendship, that the roots of loneliness in America go back literally centuries, that when America formed as a culture, <clears throat> certain ideas of radical individualism took hold in a very fierce way uh, and uh, profound way. You see it in the writings of Benjamin Franklin or in uh, Thomas uh, or, or in Henry David Thoreau, you know, the ideal of living alone in a Walden Pond, uh, or Ralph Waldo Emerson who writes, society everywhere is in conspiracy against the manhood of every one of its members. And notice how in Emerson, the idea of being socially connected is, is, is somehow to be feminized. Manhood requires isolation in some way. It's the John Wayne ideal, right? Uh, the Clint Eastwood idea. Uh, in their research, they went to someone who was a movie buff and said, tell us how many movies uh, you can think of Westerns in particular where it's the, the ideal is the lonely, you know, man with his horse riding into the West and the guy's reply was, all of them. <laughs> all of them. In other words, our culture is feeding us daily this notion that manhood in particular means some form of standing over against the community. I love the final scene of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain because Huck Finn's trying to break free of society. Freedom is, in Huck Finn's terms, is separation from society. In the final pages of uh, Huck Finn, he's come back home, uh, and he, the widow Douglas is trying to civilize him. So to survive, he must break out for Indian territory. Since I grew up in Oklahoma, I realized why he wanted to get there, because that was the ideal. Indian Territory was Oklahoma, eventually. Uh, but that was the idea. You must get outside of society to be a real person, to be a real man. And I'm arguing that that kind of mentality, that kind of myth, what they call the male code, is just absolutely imprinted on our consciousness. And most of it's unconscious. It's not we think about it. It's not that we choose to act this way. It's just a part of the air we breathe. It's in the movies. It's in the music. It's in the novels. It's in the advertising. Uh, I think of recent movies uh, like A Star is Born or Bohemian Rhapsody, where to be the real artist, you know, to be the really creative person, you must be over against society. And it often leads to your death, and the Kurt Cobain kind of thing. But so what? You know, at least you were true to your authentic self being independent of the rest of the world. It's a toxic brew that we drink. And it's partly fed by deep-rooted Calvinism, uh, this hyper-individualism. It shows up in our religion, by the way. Why is there so much evangelical religion where it's about Jesus and me? 
in this kind of isolated uh, way. Uh, people like Robert Bella has, have pointed this out. So the results are obvious and documented. Fragmented and frayed <coughs> social networks leading to an, uh, poor health, increased aggression, depression, anxiety, and early death. A book that's just come out a few days ago we want to recommend, and Leonard's going to be referring to it, I think, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, some more uh, in a moment, or tomorrow. Uh, the Second Mountain, The Quest for the Moral Life uh, by David Brooks, who will be speaking at the Christian Scholars Conference next month uh, at Lubbock Christian, uh, a marvelous new book. Uh, he writes this. The emphasis upon self, individual success, self-fulfillment, individual freedom, self-actualization is a catastrophe. I think, he says, I now think that living a good life requires a much vaster transformation. It's not enough to work on your own weaknesses. The whole cultural paradigm has to shift from the mindset of hyper-individualism to the relational mindset of what he's going to call the second mountain, the title of the book, and Linder will explain that later. Uh, for six decades, he writes, the worship of the self has been the central preoccupation of our culture, molding the self, investing in the self, expressing the self. Capitalism, the meritocracy, and modern social science have normalized selfishness. They have made it seem that the only human motives that are real are the self-interested ones, the desire for money, status, and power. When a whole society is built around self-preoccupation, its members become separated from one another, divided and alienated, and alienated, and that is what has happened to us. Brooks is remarkably confessional in owning up to the problem, uh, to this hyper-individualism. It turned him into a certain kind of person. He confesses aloof, invulnerable, and uncommunicative. His sins were the sins, he says, of withdrawal, evasion, workaholism, conflict avoidance, failure to empathize, and failure to express myself openly. I was struck yesterday when Rabbi uh, Wolfe talked about the fact that David in Scripture was so remarkable because he listened to women, <laughs> as though that was a really weird thing to do. And that communicated clear to the audience, just the kind of the, the, titters, the twitters that I heard around uh, when he made that point. Uh, uh, Brooks also says that for years he was not present to others. Uh, he was not present to what he loved because he pri prioritized time over people, productivity over relationship. And when his marriage failed in 2013, he was de devastated, he said. I was unplanted, lonely, humiliated, and scattered. I think his story is a perfect summation of the American archetype, the successful, driven, and virtually friendless American male. Hyper-individualism is everywhere in our culture, Brooks asserts, but its toll on men, I believe, is large. Uh, the myth that we live under, the cultural paradigm, as he calls it, is to be, uh, is to be socialized as somehow or another to be feminized. To be interdependent, Brooks writes, appears unmanly, unheroic, and un-American. Actually, that's Olson Fort saying that. 
the self-reliant <clears throat> loner hero is the myth. And it's almost invariably a male myth. Uh, boys who want to grow up to be men in America <clears throat> are taught some version of the American doctrine or dogma that social isolation and private, unspoken, unacknowledged suffering is the price of manhood. Alan Jacobs calls it the romantic cult of selfhood, and it overwhelms our culture. I think there are other factors that are feeding into this. There's a kind of a feedback loop going on where one dimension feeds another. Uh, look at other factors that are affecting uh, this notion of loneliness, the experience of loneliness. One is the decline of marriage and traditional marriage and the exponential rise in the number of single-person households. Uh, and uh, on to that, add the, the rise of the Internet and the power of social networking, which creates the illusion of connection when there isn't real connection. <clears throat> How many studies are there out there now? They're just multiplying showing that large amounts of screen time cor correlate directly to feelings of isolation and depression. So we have fake friends to replace real friends. Then there's the <coughs> proliferation of video streaming, the Netflix effect, which means that people have fewer reasons to go out and meet others, fewer reasons to socialize. Cocooning is the, 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 the term about marriages today where uh, the couple simply go home and do their thing together because they're so tired, they're so exhausted from work, and so, and you've always got a movie to watch, right, uh, on Netflix or Amazon Prime or choose your favorite service. The, another weird thing that's going on is the increasing expectations <coughs> of work and family. Uh, Americans work today harder and longer than their grandparents or parents. A lot of evidence of this. At the same time, <clears throat> the ex expectation of men in the marriage has gone up. And there's good news here. Men are doing more of the housework, for example. Men are taking on child-rearing responsibilities to a much greater degree than they did, say, in my father's uh, uh, era or even in, when, my, when my children were small. But the, the sum total of all this is more, 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 when we still only have 168 hours a week. So something has to give. You've got to do more at home, and you've got to do more at work, that raises an interesting question as these goalposts are moved, uh, where is there room for a friendship? Uh, a friend of mine at church once said, and her husband was about in his 40s, she said, my husband hasn't formed a friendship since college days. He had friends when he was in a club or in a fraternity, but there was no time to form a friendship uh, beyond that. And so evidence shows us that women tend to sustain friendships longer, keep them going through the ages of their life. And men's list of friends shrink over time. There's less and less for that. But the fact is, <coughs> men need friends, real friends, just as much as anyone else. Uh, they may remember good close friends in the past. They had strong male bonds and uh, athletics in high school or college, maybe through a fraternity, but once married and immersed in a career, they cease investing in friendships. Um, this goes on and on, uh, and there are whole books now on this subject. And by the way, there are books on, on the subject of how women's friendships actually uh, enrich their marriages. Uh, 
And uh, I, that book on how men's friendships enrich marriages may need to be written. I'm not sure it's around. So to summarize, America is in the grip of the loneliness crisis. It affects young and old, men and women. Uh, it's the product of a vastly powerful, popular ideology uh, rooted in American history, sustained by popular <coughs> culture, compounded by technology that promises the illusion of friendships when they are not real. They're devoid of obligation. They're devoid of personal sacrifice. Uh, American radical individualism and the male code are fundamentally at odds with the teachings of scripture, I might note. <coughs> uh, the practices of Christianity for 2,000 years teach us the right way to do this. But there's, this is another case where American cultural ideology overwhelms and silences scripture in actual practice, I fear. <clears throat> so we sing, don't fence me in, not blessed be the tie. Excuse me. Will we have time for questions? And we hope so. Yeah. yeah. Please. We hope so. We thought, Daryl and I thought, that rather than talking um, about um, just about the concept of friendship, definitions of friendship, which we'll, we'll do some more uh, a little later today, the best thing to do might be to tell a story of friendship as an example, in this case, our own example uh, of friendship. So that's what for the next 10 or 15 minutes, 10 or 12 minutes, um, I want to tell our story of friendship. Daryl and I have been friends for nearly 25 years. Our friendship began while we were both professors at Abilene Christian University. Daryl was in the English department there, and I was in the department of Bible. <clears throat> we had known and admired each other as academics and as colleagues for a good while. <clears throat> but one particular year, our friendship was forged there in a deep and unexpected way. It was simply... Um, as I look back, uh, a gift. And if Daryl were telling the story here instead of me, I, I think he would say the same thing, uh, an unexpected gift. Over the many years that have followed, it has continued and it's grown. It's grown across the expanse of great distances through strong vocational and family pressures through sorrows and losses, and also through seasons of disorientation and times of momentous life decisions. And so we, uh, we offer our story today as simply one window into what friendship between men can look like in our time. And uh, we've had to do this, tell this in a kind of humble and spare sort of way, not as necessarily an exemplar, but as a, a window into how it's actually worked for us. And to tell this story, I want to use the central image from David Brooks's new book that Daryl referred to and quoted from called The Second Mountain. It's really quite a rich book. It's not an explicitly Christian book, but you will quickly find that all the way through there are deep and rich Christian themes. And David Brooks of Jewish heritage has come to have a deep appreciation both 
uh, in understanding and I think personally of the Christian, key Christian ways uh, of following Jesus. And you'll find quotations throughout the book of people like Henry Nowen and um, I can't remember now. A bunch of Christian writers that most of you would recognize. Um, so I want to use his image of the second mountain and what he means by that. Brooks says that some people's lives are a two-mountain journey. The first mountain is the mountain we climb to make something of ourselves to establish uh, one's own identity, say, apart from one's parents, to establish a family and a career, to gain a reputation through one's work or accomplishments, <coughs> and to become a well-respected person, or to use more psychological language, to build a secure ego. It's the mountain most of us start climbing almost without thinking about it especially men. But somewhere along the way, for a good many different reasons, and in maybe earlier or later in one's life, some of us find ourselves in the valley beyond the mountain, that first mountain. Some crisis, some calamity, some soul-crushing anguish, draws one, maybe even sometimes hurdles one down the mountain and into the deep valley below. And he gives many illustrations of people at different walks of life, how their first mountain life came to an end by some experience, some illness, some tragedy that thrust them into a whole season of searching. It is a period, he says, he uses the imagery of the wilderness and there, in that deep valley, when one is thrust into it or chooses to enter it, Brooks says, and indeed, deep Christian wisdom says, there's a three-step process that follows. I'm quoting his words now. Dying to the old self, cleansing in the emptiness, the new emptiness, and resurrecting in the new. He's not speaking there directly as a Christian, but that is a key Christian pattern that Christ calls us into. So the first step is a coming undone. The second step is a move, he says, into the wilderness, a place of barrenness where things, old things, get stripped away. In the wilderness, one is forced to confront one's life at the deepest and truest level. Brooks says, I quote this sentence, when you get down to the core of yourself, you find a different, more primeval country, and you discover in it, eventually, a deep yearning to care and to connect. So there in the wilderness, usually after a good long sojourn there in that place, one begins to discern the outlines of the second mountain, a bigger mountain, a very different kind of mountain. 
And let me say that my friendship with Daryl began just at this point for me. It began as a kind of miracle, as I look back, in the depths of the valley and became a sustaining presence in the fairly long wilderness that followed. And his friendship in this season helped me begin to see the emerging contours of that second mountain and remained a stabilizing and steady presence as I've continued to journey up that way over the years since. Let me fill out this story and explain more of what I mean by this imagery. The year that our friendship began, a very private personal crisis precipitated in me what I would call a spiritual collapse. It would fit under the umbrella of what St. John of the Cross famously called a dark night of the soul. There are various species of that genus. Mine had deep roots in my past, indeed in the story of my father that I will tell tomorrow. The crisis unfolded for me in several stages over a year or so. At its height, I abruptly resigned my teaching post at the end of an academic year and retreated into my own wilderness. Daryl, to my great surprise, met me there. I remember vividly the day he invited me to his home and asked me to tell my story. He was an admired colleague at that time, but not a trusted friend. So I didn't know how to proceed at first. And I was bearing, I would say, a certain handicap from my upbringing in this regard, as I'll indicate tomorrow. To clear a space for me to ease into following his invitation, Daryl told me some of his own story, particularly of a season some years ago, years before, when he had experienced a deep betrayal followed by a long journey of recovery and reorientation of his life. To use Brooks' metaphor, <coughs> he told of his own plunge down the first mountain and of his own long road toward that second one. This was a strange new place for me, one I had not visited before. To be received there, welcomed there, by one who knew the place, seemed unbelievable. I began to tell my story at his invitation, haltingly at first, and then in a torrent. In the weeks and months that followed, we went back and forth, telling our stories with richer texture and with greater forthrightness and honesty. And so began our long journey of friendship nearly 25 years ago. A third person soon joined us and made it a circle. And the bond that formed among us was built around candor, trust, growing trust, some common interest, which I think all deep friendships require, joint adventures, I mean real adventures, an easy presence with each other, and as we gradually discovered 
similar experiences with our own fathers. Each of us, in discovery, had longed to be known, affirmed, and blessed by fathers who had been largely unable to do that. For most of these years, we lived in different parts of the country. At present, Daryl and I live 855 miles apart. For many years, it was much further than that. But the friendship has remained strong and steady, marked and sustained by certain practices and rhythms. <clears throat> One key practice I'll share with you is a commitment to getting together for a retreat once, twice, even three times a year. We've, on those retreats, we've climbed mountains, hiked forests, hung out on beaches, explored, can I say this, wine countries, uh, <laughs> discovered urban centers, and hidden out in, in out-of-the-way cabins. Wherever we are, we enact a kind of ritual, a circling back in some way to our stories, well known to each other, of course, over many years. We circle back to catch up on unfolding episodes, explore continuing temptations and challenges, and to assess <coughs> our journeys with each other and to bless, <coughs> to bless one another. It is like a ritual. We live in different spheres, face different pressures in our lives, we have other friends. The level of regular contact ebbs and flows, but we seem always to pick up where we left off, knowing and being known, trusting and being trusted, loving and being loved. We're friends. We know each other's stories, um, can I say, all too well. And we hold them as a sacred trust. And we have good evidence over these years that our friendship radiates beyond ourselves. To bless our wives, our children, and others who know us as leaders and friends. <clears throat> I think I can say that our friendship has been an adventure between two mountains. It began in a deep valley below that first mountain and has sustained us each in our own ways through an expanse of wilderness. And it continues to enable us as we journey on that second mountain over the years. It's the place where we begin to discover that truer, better self, that more primeval country, to use Brooks's image, a place where we grow and yearn to connect more with others, to give more to others, and where we're learning to live with what uh, Richard Rohr called a bright sadness or a sober happiness. Second mountain life, David Brooks says, I quote, is a life of love, care, and commitment. It is the antidote much that is wrong in our culture, end of quote. 
So let me say um, that um, Daryl and I and our other friend make no extravagant claims for our friendship, but I do want to claim that it has done much to help us, each in our own way, press into and discover life on that second mountain. And to be clear, second mountain life, I think, is but another way of speaking of the cruciform way of our Lord Jesus. We're going to quickly do a kind of a taxonomy of friendship and talk about the fact that there are many ways of thinking about levels of friendship, and, and we'll leave time for some questions, too. Yeah, okay. And uh, Daryl's going to kind of join me as we just kind of explore the um, what we mean by friendship here for a few minutes. And we wanted to give you kind of a story as maybe one way of thinking about a certain level, a certain kind of friendship, male friendship. So what do we mean by friendship? The word is used, as Daryl indicated, very broadly in our culture. Uh, we use it for relationships ranging from very casual acquaintances to people who share maybe a special interest with us, like golf or gardening, to people with whom we have regular and satisfying chats, to people who enrich our lives in significant ways regularly, uh, and even and then to those few with whom we share deep honesty and easy intimacy. In our Facebook culture, many people boast hundreds, maybe thousands of friends. But one has to wonder what that really means, because they're often their only friends of friends of friends. Um, what that really means and whether it has much at all to do with genuine friendship. Some years ago, just to get into this a little more, some years ago, a huge tome was published uh, entitled The Norton Book of Friendship. It's a, a big 600 and something page book. It contained a vast array of essays and poems and letters and memoir excerpts from across many centuries, all, all of it attempting to illustrate and expound the nature of friendship. Alan Jacobs, the, uh, the Christian literary critic, uh, now a professor at Baylor University, reviewed this book in a long essay. And he says he viewed the anthology at first as a kind of entertaining bedtime book to dip into. He said kind of, uh, kind of gossipy and formless. But he said as he continued reading it, he, came, he said he came to view it, these are his words, as a compelling testimony to a profound cultural poverty. Um, what he meant by that was that the book works out of a minimalist understanding of friendship and thus reflects the scarcity of serious and intimate friendships in our own time. Uh, and as Darrell referred to, he, Jacobs believes this scarcity of real friendship in our culture is due in large part to what he calls the romantic cult of selfhood. That is to say, the, the dominant ethos that elevates the sovereign self and its fulfillment to center stage of life. So, um, he says, casual acquaintance gets readily confused with friendship. So that it becomes even difficult for us to even realize that something is missing. 
and he proposes a, a more accurate title for the Norton Book of Friendship. He says, a better title would be something like The Norton Book of Companionship, Conviviality, Acquaintanceship, Shared Interest, Mutual Admiration, Cordial Rivalry, and every once in a while, Genuine Friendship. <laughs> um, so he's trying to make a point, of course, uh, with that. He's saying that we have lost a grip on even understanding, much less practice, of what people like C.S. Lewis and many of the ancients viewed it as intimacy, a friendship, a kind of love that he, that he developed in his book, The Four Loves, called Nicolia, Friendship. <coughs> now, we, we all have a good many, maybe quite a few, cordial and enjoyable and beneficial relationships. I hope we do. But at what point, we might ask, does a cordial or mutually enjoyable or beneficial relationship become a friendship. A man named Joseph Epstein published a wonderful essay uh, quite a few years ago entitled, A Former Good Guy and His Friends. And in this, uh, Epstein cites um, Plutarch's famous claim that a person needs no more than seven friends in his or her life. Well, I mean, the number may be a little arbitrary, but um, seven intimate friends. And then Epstein, building on that, proceeds to think through his own friends <coughs> and his closer acquaintances, <coughs> placing them in three tiers as he works through it. He says, I quote, I can think of exactly seven friends, some very good friends, whose death or disappearance from my life would devastate me. And then he says, I can think of a second tier of 10 or so friends who enrich my life, but with whom the, the same degree of easy intimacy and depth of feeling does not quite exist. And then he says, I can think of a third tier of 20 or so people whom I'm always pleased to see and hear from, in whose company I feel perfectly comfortable and with whom I believe I share a reciprocal regard. So there's about, what, 37 people or so, <coughs> maybe 40. At this point, Epstein asked whether the people in this third tier, um, who certainly are, he says, more than, a, than acquaintances, really should be called friends. He says, Quote, there ought to be a word to denote relationships that fall between that of acquaintance and friend. And indeed, there is such a word that C.S. Lewis supplied for us in his book, The Four Loves. He argues, or he argues that on a level below genuine friendship, which is marked by love, philia, lies what he calls companionship. So we would say that Epstein's third tier is made up of his companions. <clears throat> and we can probably even say that his second tier, those who enrich his life but without the same degree of intimacy as a friend, is also made up of companions. If we were to be properly strict in limiting the title of friendship to those whom we truly love. 
Now, um, I'm going to invite Bill into this conversation a bit uh, here. Um, you know, I, th I think we'd want to um, uh, distinguish friendship in this sense, this, this deeper, this richer sense, from two other things that Christians care about, that Jesus himself calls us to care about, and that is uh, our neighbor, love of neighbor, which is anyone around us in need. It's a different kind of love. It is an un unequal kind of love. With friends, there's got to be a kind of equality and a, and a choosing and even an attractiveness, <coughs> which sh should not be true of those we're called to love as neighbors. And then there's another sort of tier here that we have to attend to as Christians that we'd say love of brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, there are many such, those, many of them here this week that we can say, even if we don't know them very well, we love them because of the bond that we share through our baptism into Christ. Uh, so, so among those, we will choose a few friends, but all of them, all of you, are brothers and sisters in that very important sense. And that brings some challenges to the understanding of friendship. And it brings some, even some risks or temptation to entering into deeper and closer friendships because we don't want to neglect those other obligations that our, our, our discipleship to Jesus brings to us. That is, love of neighbor and love of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Daryl might like to... Well, you know, we could do a whole series on this whole spectrum of kinds of friendship and there's doing our own taxonomy. I, I, there's one course I went through that has like five categories from acquaintances to casual to good to close to intimate. And, and I think it's helpful to recognize there are all these levels and to be glad of that, you know, and to celebrate them and to encourage them. But our primary focus today and tomorrow will be on that final category of we don't, for which we do not have a name. And this is this intimate friendship. And I, for me, the, uh, the hallmarks of it are really important. One of them is um, the, uh, the ability to share important matters with that person. Uh, there are social uh, science surveys out there that sh ask the question, not are you lonely or not? They tend to say, do you have someone you can go to with some deep personal issue? And with, between 1985 and the present, the number of people who said no to that question, I do not have a single person I can go to with a deep personal issue has tripled since 85, according to social surveys. Mm -hmm. That's a problem that we're really concerned about. And what we're saying is we all must have people in our lives, and it may be one or two or three, maybe it's up to five. Uh, the, this, the survey I'm reading here says you can have, at this level of friendship, uh, you know, up to four people maybe uh, of this sort. So whether it's four or seven, the fact is it's going to be few, but you must have someone you go to with this personal issue. Or to simply say, do you have a confidant? The number of people who can report that I have a confidant is plummeting. And we're, uh, we're saying that that's a problem. For that person, it's a problem for anyone around them. Uh, I, I don't think the day will ever come when we learn of one of these perpetrators of a crime like a mass shooting, when people say, well, their problem was they were so too, they were too deeply connected with so many people at their high school, right? That's not going to happen. Almost invariably, there's an association of isolation and alienation and anger and violence. 
um, one, one little, um, little maybe semi-whimsical way of thinking about levels of friendship uh, someone shared with me a while back with four rhyming um, phrases or categories. Um, he says there are must friends. That would be that, that those friends you, you really, you, you must call when something big happens. You must talk to. There are trust friends, uh, he says, um, those that you, you do trust and often might talk those things about. There are just friends, he says, those that are certainly not a part of an inner circle of trust and intimacy. And then there are rust friends, he says, the friendships that are rusty with age and might need to be uh, oiled off and shined up and renewed. We have a few minutes left. Yeah. We could take a question. Yeah, we're glad to comment. respond to your, uh, your comments or your questions. <laughs> Corrections. Yeah. Scott, is that right? Yes. Um, in, in 1993, I went to Saudi Arabia. I left California, uh, a big church, and went to Saudi Arabia to work. And for several years, I was isolated. I had my family with me. There was no church association, and no friend was there. And so it was one of these desert experiences, literally. And when I came back, I didn't know how to make friends. I didn't remember how to make friends. And what I did was identify people in the church where we were going who were isolated, who were isolated themselves. They stood off the corner. They didn't sit quite together. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I went to them and talked to them and tried to make friends with them. And one of the most important ones was the preacher himself. He was an introvert. He didn't have close friends. And his associations were all church people. And I went to him and I said, we need to be, we need to get together outside of this context and, and um, help each other with life, not just what you preach about or what my spiritual problems are, whatever, but all kinds of other things. <coughs> so we talk about baseball and we talk about travel and we talk about our kids and our grandkids and things like that. It was a very intentional thing and it became a Holy Spirit activity. I began to be aware that this was a mission for me. And I started doing that with other people. It turned out there were a whole bunch of retired men in our congregation who were all isolated. Uh, they had a wife, but some of them were widows already. And they didn't have male friends. Some of them played golf but that was more of a rivalry than, than friendship. And so I started to work with those guys. And lives have developed profound friendships. And I think it was the Holy Spirit that motivated this. And I've tried to yield to those impulses. You know, going to somebody you don't know and just introducing yourself and persisting is risky business. Uh, you have to be vulnerable, you have to risk rejection, 
and it took me a long time to respond to others who did that. I never noticed others doing that. And I don't like people naturally. Um, I have to decide to like you. I don't know if everybody has that affliction, but a lot of men do. And uh, you'll find out it's because of your father. This is my father. (laughs) 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 If If you talk to dad for 10 minutes, You'll find out you're related to us. <laughs> or somebody very close to you is related to us. Or you went to school with them at Harding or something. But he's, he was a model, but I didn't really buy into it. I, I didn't like to do that. But liking it wasn't the essential thing. I had to want to do it. We have just a couple of minutes, but we might have take another comment. Thank you for your testimony on it. Thank you. Yeah, right here. And then sure. the question, um, kind of when you were in your dark night of the soul, I imagine that Daryl wasn't the only person that was trying to make some connection or reaching out to you at that time. Um, oh, almost. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I just wondering, what was it, like, what tangibly was it about the way he reached out to you that, that I mean, that allowed you to open up and build a friendship where you were receiving. Let's uh, maybe give each of us give our perspective on mm-hmm. that. His, um, uh, well, Daryl was already an admired colleague of mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I knew what he was about yeah. as a as a professor, as a scholar, as a person, as a as a churchman, and there was a level initially of I would say of regard and trust, so a measure of trust, yeah. and that made it at least initially, a place I was willing to step into. I would also uh, just observe that at the time I was a shepherd or an elder in, in a congregation, and one of the things that shepherds are supposed to do is protect sheep, right? And so at, at one level, I was doing my duty as an elder in a church, seeing him, uh, in my p- opinion, being at risk and being mistreated. But he and wasn't in your church, though. No, he wasn't even in my congregation, actually, at that time, although you became members of the same congregation. And so partly it was just, uh, there was a kind of a dual connection. We were colleagues at the university, but I was also a shepherd. And, and it could well have happened. In fact, this happens more often than not. You make an overture to someone, and they basically say thank you very much, and they go on their way. They're not really interested in full and deep engagement. But in this case, it's a case of readiness, my willingness and his readiness. That's, I think that was the the mystery and the, the gift of uh, the friendship that, that flourished over time because of the, the readiness. And it was also the case that I could see patterns in his life that I recognized from my own experience. In other words, there was a sense of, I've, I've seen this train wreck before. <laughs> and, um, and I think that was a, a, a part of it. I think that was a very important piece, yeah. me being able to step into what he was opening to. Yeah. I want to say one other quick thing, and that is you mentioned ministers. Ministers are among the, mo- the loneliest people in congregations. Mm-hmm. And there's a, this is a serious, serious issue, and I think it leads to a lot of problems that ministers have when affairs occur and what have you, is because real friendship, <coughs> the kind of friendship we're advocating, requires a kind of equality <coughs> of, of, of relationship. And when you're in this position of power or mm-hmm. prestige or, 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 or whatever, it, it really inhibits relationships. 
I faced this problem at Pepperdine when I came. I went to a seminar on how to be a provost, and I was paired with a couple of experienced provosts that were my mentors. And one of my questions for them was, can I have friends while I am, I'm in this very hierarchical organization? And one of the provosts said to me, yes, you can, but it's very difficult. And the other said, no, you can't. You cannot have friends. Now, you have all kinds of colleagues, associates, you know, people you work with, people you even like. But the power relations are so weird, you know, either everyone answers to you or you answer to someone else above you, and it's always business all the time yeah. at some level. Yeah. Even if you say it's not, it is. Yeah. Uh, and so what I did is I had to go outside my circle mm -hmm. at Pepperdine to find other friends that were not connected to the church here or not connected to the university. Real quick. Uh, just real quick, does the individual's personality have anything that you're yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. That's why this kind of friendship um, isn't... It, it, Christ calls us to a kind of universal regard of people of all sorts, the broken, the struggling. But for an enduring and intimate friendship, there has to be a certain measure of equality. Yeah. We'll, talk, we'll address that sometime. Yes. Okay. With an, an, a, a quick uh, addition, and that is... We're not clones of one another. If you were to interview the, the three of us, there's a third person we're not talking about today, you would be amazed at how different we are in lots and lots of ways. And people say, how did you ever become friends? Because a lot of our interests are quite different, too. So it's, it's a mixed bag. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. We'll continue this uh, with a couple more stories and some uh, tomorrow.